Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at Grace Point Church, we believe in meeting people where they are and leading them to where God wants them to be. Join us now as we listen to this week's message. Today we're continuing our series. We're in part three, and uh, if this is your first time here, then you're walking into the middle of a conversation. But don't worry, you can catch up, because we have uh, last two weeks' messages are already posted on our website, and as I had mentioned earlier, we completely redesigned it, so it's a lot easier to find the messages that you're looking for. But what we did is we began this series talking about this growing group of people that in culture today were called the nuns, N-O-N-E, nuns. And the reason that we're called the nuns, it, that word actually came from, you know, when you fill out a form and, and or when you're asked a, a questionnaire and... And they ask you, what's your religious affiliation? And almost always at the very bottom, there's a box that says none. And more and more people are stepping away from religion and becoming part of this growing group of nuns. 25% of the population in the United States today call themselves nuns. 35% of millennials identify as nuns. And most of the people who have stepped away from religion stepped away from Christianity. Because there was something about it that they just couldn't reconcile. See, if you are here today or if you're listening to us online, you may have grown up in the church. You may have grown up with this understanding or this idea of God. And and if you stepped away, if you were one of those people that stepped away, or if you're thinking about stepping away, then let me tell you something. It's completely understandable. It's not unusual. Because there are some things about believing in God that when you think about them, it's just kind of uncomfortable. There there are things about the Bible that when we think about them, they can be uncomfortable. There are things about religion in general that when we think about it, it can be uncomfortable. And for those of you who grew up in the church, who grew up getting Sabbath school or Sunday school answers to your adulthood questions, if you you kept getting faith-based answers to your fact-based questions, then of course you would step away from that version of Christianity. But see, for many people, the idea of fully embracing atheism, of fully embracing this idea that we are simply a chemistry shaped into biology and controlled by physics, that, that this is all that there is, that that's a hard thing too, that that is also uncomfortable. And many people just aren't ready to check the atheist box on their form. So faced with the choice between your religious doubts and the idea that this is all that there is, that there's nothing else, it makes sense that so many people in this technologically advanced world that we live in today find themselves lost in the middle. They're not drifting towards one. They're not drifting towards the other. When I say that they're lost in the middle, I'm not saying that if you're a nun, that you're waking up in the middle of the night worrying about it. I mean, if you are one of the people that identifies as a nun, you probably have a great life. You probably have a good job, a good career. You have great family and friends. And if someone were to to ask you, what you might say is, yeah, you know, I grew up in church or, or I grew up in a religious home. But your experience would be, as many people's were, was that as you grew up, your adulthood questions 
overwhelmed your childhood faith. And you just stepped away. And it's not that atheism is more appealing. It's just that Christianity has lost its appeal. And so when I listen to or read the stories of people who have de-Christianized, when I talk to the people that I know or, or, or read the blog posts and the Facebook posts of people that I don't know, and I hear their experiences, one of the things that we talked about last week was that those de-Christianization stories have one of two things in common, sometimes both. The first one that we said was that we talked about a somebody told me so God. Right? We talked about the gods of our childhood, like we talked about secret service God. A secret service God was the God that never let bad things happen to good people. And then we grew up, and we saw really, really good people who had really, really bad things happen to them. And we just gave up on believing in God. We talked about several other of the gods that we grew up with, and we said, listen, if you gave up believing on any of those gods, then good, because you are right. Those gods do not exist. So if you've lost your faith or are losing your faith, then it may be that you've lost your faith or are losing your faith in a god that never existed in the first place. The second element that we often see in here in those stories is a, for the Bible tells me so, Jesus. And so today we're going to be spending the rest of our time talking about a, for the Bible tells me so, Jesus. Now, if you are a Christian and you are listening, I implore you, listen carefully. Because if you listen casually today to what we're talking about, you just might misunderstand me. And then I'll be getting a lot of emails and a lot of phone calls. Okay, so I need you to listen carefully. Not because anything that I have to say is very brilliant, but because we're going to be going through a lot of things and we don't want to be here until 6 o'clock. Okay, so for some of you today, and it might be for you or for your parents or your children or your grandchildren, but for some of you today, my hope is this, is that this is the message that is going to give some of you permission to step back towards the faith that you grew up with, back towards Christianity. Not the version of Christianity that you grew up with, but back towards Christianity as it was intended to be. Now, a lot of you were brought up like me, and we were taught this. Jesus loves me. This I know. Right? It's a little song. If you had kids, you would still be teaching them this song. Jesus loves me, this I know. And what's the rest? For the Bible tells me so. We, we've heard this song. We grew up with this song. But here's the thing. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so is where all of our problems began. Right there. Because the implication in this song, and I do not, I'm not faulting the person who wrote this, but when we grew up with this, the implication of this song is that the Bible is the reason that we believe. The Bible is the reason that we believe. In other words, I can believe that Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. 
I can believe it, but the only reason that I believe it is because it's in the Bible, right? That's the implication of that song. Now, if you grew up here in the United States, if you grew up in a church, there's a saying that you hear a lot, you hear it all over the South, but you may have grown up here hearing it too. And it's a saying that says, if the Bible says it, that settles it. In fact, you can go into many churches, not this one, but you can go into many churches, you stand up in the front, and if you say, if the Bible says it, the whole place will say, that settles it. And that's how we grew up. That if the Bible says it, then there's no question. If you grew up as a Christian, that's what we were taught. In fact, we so revered this book that you weren't allowed to put anything on top of it. You weren't allowed to hide it. It had to be out. It had to be in the open. It's full of dust on the shelf, but you can't put anything on top of it. Right? So we get this idea of, of, of the Bible says it, and that settles it. And we put that into our children. And then we send our children away to college, and they go away with this, the Bible says it, that settles it attitude. And when they get there, they find out that that doesn't settle it. That it didn't do it. And they come home, and they'll ask mom or dad, or their aunt or their uncle or their grandmother. And they'll say, listen, I, I was taught this in school. Did you know? And, and the answer that they get is, no, no, no. If the Bible says it, that settles it. The problem with that is that if the Bible is the foundation of Christianity, then as the Bible goes, so goes Christianity. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, if the foundation of Christianity is the Bible, then any doubts about the Bible, any doubts about the truth of the Bible, no matter how small they are, raise doubts about Christianity. So if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, then it's all or nothing, right? If, if something in the Bible is not true, then everything in the Bible is not true. And we grow up with this idea that if the Bible says it, that settles it. And we go to school and we learn that, that much of what is in the Old Testament is historically and archaeologically in dispute. And if you brought these things to your parents or your grandparents, they would say, well, we're Christians, we don't believe that. But there were dinosaurs. No, no, we're Christians, we don't believe that. But the earth has been around for a long time. No, we're Christians, we don't believe that. It doesn't matter what they say, we don't believe it. And so instead of addressing those questions, Christians just avoid them. And we just say, well, we're Christians, we don't believe that. And the reason that we do that is because Christians were brought up in a culture that said, if everything in the Bible isn't absolutely true, then none of it is true. And so we end up having to defend the Bible. And if that is the culture that we're raised in, then the Bible becomes a house of cards, where all you have to do is pull one piece out and everything collapses. So it collapses when we're told that there is no scientific evidence for a worldwide flood. It collapses when we're told that there is no scientific evidence of a mass exodus from Egypt. It collapses when we're told that there is no possible way that the earth is only 6,000 years, years old. 
that the earth is actually 4.55 billion years old, that the universe is 14 billion years old. And all of a sudden, there's this tension between what the Bible says and what science says. And if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, then if the whole Bible isn't true, then the Bible isn't true. And we get to this place where we're adults, and we start to hear things that make us wonder if everything in the Bible is true, and we start to conclude that maybe everything in the Bible isn't as true as we thought it might be, and everything collapses. Because everything that we believe in rests on the Bible. Now, Christians, we feel pressure to defend the Bible. And when we do that, it puts the Bible at the center of the, the debate. And we are put in the situation where if we can't defend every little thing in the Bible, the sun stood still for a whole day, uh, an axe head floated on top of the water, if we can't defend everything in the Bible, then the Bible must not be true. And if you de-Christianized, or if you are thinking about going through the de-Christianization process because of the Bible, because of something you read in the Bible, or because of something you were told about the Bible, then I want to suggest to you this afternoon, not morning, but this afternoon, that you are considering leaving or that you left unnecessarily. And what I hope is at the end of our time together today, you will consider taking a step back towards the faith of your childhood. Not your childhood faith, but the grown-up version of your faith. Because listen, and I need you guys to get this, Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. You do not exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents something that happened. And the New Testament, the, the New Testament part of the Bible, documents something that happened. See, Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. It's the other way around. And for me to show you why I say that, we're going to need to go through a little bit of history. And if you have ever opened up a history book, the first thing that they show you in history books on the inside cover is a timeline. So we're going to go through with a timeline. We're going to put it up on the screen. Here it is, right there. That's our timeline, okay? Now, during the time of Jesus, they were using the Julian calendar. It was named after Julius Caesar. He put it into place in 46 B.C., but at that time, there was also a Hebrew calendar. So there were multiple calendars that were all in place all at the same time. In fact, it wasn't until uh, 1582 when the calendar that we use today, the Gregorian calendar, was put into place by Pope Gregory XIII. And so this explains some of the confusion behind the date associated with Christ's birth. So when Dionysius put together this idea of reorienting the calendar around Jesus' birth, which didn't happen until 525 AD, they started to count back, and what they found out was 
is that Jesus was not actually born right at the A.D. B.C. mark. He was actually born three years, about three years earlier, in about two or three B.C. That's when Jesus was born. Based on the best evidence that, that we have today. Now, the next thing that happens is 30 years later, Jesus is crucified. We're, we're on the next slide. Jesus is crucified. Three days later, he's resurrected. He comes back to the life. He, he, he rose from the dead. And then about eight to ten weeks after that, the church was launched. Eight to ten weeks after the resurrection, the church was launched. What happened was Jesus' followers went out into the streets. I think they had probably just had had enough. And they started to tell everyone who would listen, listen, you crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. We have seen him alive. And hundreds and then thousands of people joined the church. That is what launched the church in 30 AD. Not 50 years later, not 100 years later, but only a few weeks after Jesus was crucified. The next important date is 70 AD. Now, 70 AD is important because in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. It was destroyed by the Roman Empire. Now, four years before that, four years before the temple was destroyed, Vespasian, who was a military leader in Rome, uh, in... Uh, in what would be, I guess, for your 66 AD, he started in Galilee, and he went from Galilee down through every city and every town, and he used his armies to basically funnel all of the Jews down out of those cities into Jerusalem, because his goal was to, for once and for all, put down the Jewish rebellion against Rome. He finally got to Jerusalem, and he pushed everybody, everybody was forced to take shelter inside the city of Jerusalem. But what happened was, was that the emperor died and Vespasian became the new emperor. So he went back to Rome and his son Titus took over. And what Titus did was he dug a trench around the entire city, around the entire city wall, and he made it an earth mountain, earth pile hill that went around with the trench. And on those hills, he began to crucify Jews, hundreds of them, and then thousands of them. And then finally, in 70 AD, the Roman soldiers were able to breach the gates, and they were able to enter into Jerusalem. It was on August 6 that they came in, and they were able to destroy the temple. And what what many historians estimate to be in the hundreds of thousands, Jews were taken and they were made into slaves. In fact, the historians tell us that the price of slaves in the slave trade went down all the way to Rome, the, effect, the financial effect of it, because of the number of slaves that they took out of Jerusalem. Now, the reason that this is important is this. None of that, none of what we just talked about, appears in any of the documents that, were, that would eventually become the books in the Old Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, you read all of them, nothing about what happened in Jerusalem appears in those texts. 
Now, the question is, why is it that in any of those texts, in any of those manuscripts, in any of those letters, there is not one mention of what happened at the temple and what happened in Jerusalem? Something that was so significant to the Jews, why is it that there is nothing about it mentioned there? There's no reference at all. The only logical explanation is that when those documents were written, when the, when the letters were written, and when the manuscripts were written, none of this had happened yet. Which means that all of the New Testament documents that were written by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, all were probably written sometime between, and let's go to the next slide, sometime between 49 and about 86 AD. That that was when all of the New Testament writings were written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the letters from Paul, the letters from James, all of them were written during that time. Now, a lot of biblical scholars think that it was, they were written much later, but our best estimate puts the latest writings at about 86 AD. Now, why is this important to us? This is important to us because what this means is that at the time all of the New Testament books were written, all the New Testament letters were written, the people who saw what Jesus said, who heard him say it, who witnessed the things that he did, those people were still alive. It wasn't legend. They were getting the evidence from the people who actually saw it happen and heard it happen. Now, there are a lot of scholars who will try to push that date out. They want to push the date out to 90, 100, 150 years out. And the reason that they want to do that is because of the miracles of Jesus and because of the resurrection. Because it takes 70 years for legend to become history, to start sounding like history. For things that were legends that were made up to be retold and retold and eventually sound like history. So the farther out that they were able to push the writings of the New Testament, the more that they're able to argue that they didn't really happen. That Jesus' earlier followers just couldn't accept that he had died. So they started telling this story, and, and it was retold and retold and, and grew, and eventually somebody finally wrote it all down, and it was more than 70 years later, and the legend became history. The problem is, is that nobody references a point in time, in the time between 66 and 70 AD, where if you were a Jew living in Jerusalem, Galilee, or in that part of the world, that it is impossible for you not to have mentioned something so significant in your writings. And so when you, when you look at the, at the writings that were as they were discovered, there is no real evidence that puts these writings out of that time frame of 49 to, at the latest, 86 AD. And so when you read those writings, when you read the books of, of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, when they wrote them, they didn't write them as if they were a story. Right? Even back in that time, there were people who were writing fiction. They wrote stories, just like they do today. And when you read something that is a story, you know what it sounds like, right? Stories start with this. A long time ago, I was waiting for it, right? Once upon a time, back in the time of the Roman Empire, 
right? That's how people talk. That's how people write when they are writing stories. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't writing stories. They were writing history. And when you write history, it sounds different. Now, I'm just going to give you one example of something that Luke, who was a physician, he was a scientist, he was a researcher, that Luke wrote in his, in, in his book, which, which is one of those things that if you ever read through Luke, this is one of those uh, texts where you would just skim over it because you wouldn't understand why this is important, that somebody probably just had to fill the rest of the page, and so they put this on there. But I want you to see how far Luke goes to pin down specifically this time in history that he's writing. This comes from Luke 3, and it starts in verse 1. And this is what he says. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now remember, there's multiple calendars, right? So it does them no good to say on June 14th, 1774, because everybody has a different calendar. So in order to make it specific, he gives us details, because Luke wants there to be no doubt about when this is taking place. It would be the equivalent of us saying this, in the 241st year of the United States of America, when Donald Trump was president, Jerry Brown was governor of California, during the NBA playoffs, the day before game four of the series between the Warriors and the Spurs. What other day could that be except today? See, this is what Luke was doing. There was no calendar that was agreed on, so he wanted to make sure that there was no doubt of when these things were happening. I mean, that is about as specific as you can get. And if you are making something up, if you're making up a legend, if you're making up a story, then you would never be as specific as this because you know that if someone tries to nail it down and tries to figure it out, that they will realize that you're making up a story. You can't be that specific. People are only specific when it's true. And these documents were so valuable to the early church that do you know what they did? When they had a chance to have one of those letters or one of those manuscripts in their hand, they ran down to Office Depot and made copies. <laughs> which is what we would do. But there's no Office Depot. So what they did was they meticulously copied every single one of them. They copied them by hand. In the first century, and, and historians still look at this and they're amazed by this. In the first century, these documents were copied and they were distributed throughout Jerusalem, all the way into Rome, all the way into Alexandria, all the way to Constantinople, all throughout the Mediterranean Rim. Thousands of copies of each one of these documents. Documents that, 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 that told about the life of Jesus. Documents that were letters from Paul, letters from James, letters from Peter. In fact, there is nothing else in history that compares to the spread of these documents. There would be nothing else that's even close to this until the printing press was invented. Do you know why it is that we make copies of documents? Because they're important, right? 
We don't make copies of things that aren't important. In fact, what we do is we make copies of something and we use the copy and we leave the original behind because they're important to us. And so the argument is, is because there's so many thousands of, of these documents out there, you know, people are going to copy them, they're going to make mistakes. Well, yeah, there were mistakes. They weren't copied exactly the same. But in the thousands of copies of those manuscripts, instead of proving themselves to be inaccurate, the thousands of copies show us that they were accurate. And if you have a, a study Bible, not, not one like this, because this one, well, actually, this one does. But if you have a study Bible, if you look in the footnotes of the Bible, sometimes you will read where they've footnoted something, and it will have a phrase like, an earlier manuscript says, or in a later document it says. You see, because what the Bible writers wanted to make sure of, the people who compiled it, they wanted to make sure that every variation of those documents was documented because they had nothing to hide. They wanted it to be as historically accurate as possible. So even when there was a variation, they put it in the footnotes. And what they found was that in all of those thousands of documents, there was nothing that historically or theologically made a difference. The people valued those manuscripts. They valued those letters and even the copies of those manuscripts and letters. But listen, they did not make copies of the Gospels because they believed they were inspired. They made copies of the Gospels because they believed they were true. Do you see what I'm saying? They didn't make copies because they thought, oh, this is God's word. I have to make copies of this. They're inspired. That's not what, why they valued them. They valued them because they believed that those documents were absolutely true. So time goes on. And it's October 28 in the year 312. And Constantine, who is one of the Tetrarchs, Tetrarchs just means he's one of the three emperors, he, he comes to what they refer to as the battle, the battle of the Milvian Bridge. And where he's there, Constantine and his armies meet Maxinius and his armies, and Constantine wins. Maxinius ends up drowning in the Tiberius River, and that started Constantine down the path to becoming the sole emperor of Rome. And in this time, between 30 AD, where the church started, and 312 AD, when Constantine became the emperor of Rome, an interesting thing happened that we still can't explain today. The church grew. The church grew, and the church spread, and the church grew. And these were the persecution years. These were the years where they were kicking down doors, dragging people out of their homes in the middle of the night, and killing them because they followed Jesus. These were the years where they were taking Christians and putting them in the Colosseum and feeding them to the lions because they loved Jesus. And it was in those years that the church didn't die. The church grew and spread and grew.
Constantine's mother, Constantine's mother became a Christian before Christianity was legal. That is how much influence and how far the expanse of Christianity was. Eventually, Constantine would lift the religious restrictions against Christianity, and he would embrace Christianity. Now, what most historians will tell you is this. Constantine did not embrace Christianity because he was interested in becoming a Christian. Constantine wasn't sitting in church one day, and he heard an amazing sermon, and he said, yes, I I believe. Constantine embraced Christianity for one reason and one reason only, to unify the empire. Remember, there were three emperors. The Roman Empire had been split, and now he was the sole emperor. And he had to find something that was going to unite the entire Roman Empire. Now, do you see the significance of this? If you're going to unite the empire, you have to find one thing that almost everybody had in common. And the one thing that every, almost everyone had in common throughout the Roman Empire was no longer worshiping the Roman gods. That's why when you look at history and you look at these events, you have to conclude that Christianity made its greatest strides during the 282 years, listen, 282 years before the Bible even existed. Christianity spread and grew, and there was no Bible. Christianity was not born on the back of, if the Bible says it, that settles it. In fact, the Jewish scriptures weren't combined with the first century documents until about 350 A.D. Worth the next, there you go, about 350 A.D. Code Sinaiticus, Code Sinaiticus was the first manuscript of the Christian Bible that contained the entire Jewish scriptures, because they didn't call it the Old Testament at the time. It contained the entire Jewish scriptures, as well as the New Testament documents. And the reason that it took this long is because to combine all of those documents, you would end up with something that is huge. Have you ever seen the Jewish scriptures? See, at this time, they were all writing, already writing on wax tablets. Some, some were even writing on paper. But all of the Jewish scriptures were still written on scrolls. And if you've ever seen just the first five books of the Bible on scrolls, they are huge. I mean, I've seen one. It's like the scrolls are this wide, the thing is this round, you've got to carry it around the, the synagogue. Those things are huge. And that's just the first five books. It wasn't until the church had the power, the authority, and the wealth of the empire that the church was able to get the resources that they needed to put together and finally bring together the Jewish scriptures, which we now call the Old Testament, and all of the documents of the New Testament writings. In fact, it wouldn't be until 30 years later at about 380 A.D. when it was first called the Bible. Now, my point is this. Before the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, 
and the New Testament. The writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the letters from Paul, the letters from Peter, the letters from James. Before all of those were combined and titled the Bible, Christianity had already replaced the pantheon of Roman, barbarian, and most Egyptian gods. And Christianity had become the state religion of the Roman Empire. The first, second, and third century Christians who faced tremendous hardship, who faced persecution, who were put to horrible deaths, believed that Jesus loved them before there was a Bible to tell them so. Peter, James, John, Luke, Paul, they all chose to follow Jesus, not because of a, an infallible Old Testament or a non-contradicting New Testament, because none of those existed at the time. For the first 300 years of Christianity, the debate centered on an event, not a book. The question that they asked was not, is the Bible true? The question that they asked was, did Jesus rise from the dead? You see, we don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says so. Because the Bible is really just a compilation of things that were written by people. By people like you, by people like me. So we believe that Jesus rose from the dead because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Paul all said so. There is no other explanation for the expansion and the success of the early church if it wasn't for that. You see, Christianity does not hang by a thread of if the Bible says it, then that settles it. See, that is a modern version of Christianity that came out when that came out because here in, in the United States, there was a time when no one questioned the Bible. And because no one questioned the Bible, we started to place our faith in something that no one disagreed with. And yet here we are today in 2018, and very, very few people now completely have faith in the Bible. And they're able to pick it apart. But that's the modern version. The original version of Christianity was defensible. It was endurable. It was fearless. It was compassionate. And in those first 300 years, it was so compelling that people who were faced with horrible deaths, with having to lose everything that they had, said, I believed it. I believe. Jesus loves you, this you know. For John, saw his best friend die and a three days later was having breakfast with him on the beach. For John tells you so. For Luke, who interviewed hundreds of witnesses to find all of the details to make sure. For Luke tells you so. For a converted, self-righteous, Jesus-hating Pharisee named Paul turned around and became the most prominent Christian in the New Testament. For Paul told you so. For his original martyrs, for his original followers, all of whom were martyred, 
they believed so. And for the early church that defied both the empire and the religion structure of the time was convinced that it was so. You see, the reason that you should consider following Jesus has nothing to do with a book. It has everything to do with who Jesus claimed to be and the fact that he punctuated his claim by predicting his own death and his own resurrection. And fortunately for you and for me, those guys who witnessed these events wrote it down. They documented it. They didn't document what they believed. They wrote down and documented what they saw. And so if you stepped away from the Bible because the Bible didn't add up, then I am hoping that you will just take a moment and reconsider. Because the issue is not, is all of the Bible true? Christianity didn't disrupt an empire because of a true Bible. It was because of a resurrected Savior. A Savior who loves you. This we know because he died for your sin to prove that it was so. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Grace Point Church is located in South San Francisco, California. For more information, look us up online at www.wearegracepoint.com.